I swallowed a big orange horse pill back in April, meaning I got into Bitcoin. And I'm easily into over a thousand hours of consuming every bit of Bitcoin content that I can get my hands on. I've read six of the most popular books, a couple of dozen of the most, I don't know, talked about articles and listened to a couple of hundred hours of podcasts. Basically, the only podcasts I've been listening to since April are about Bitcoin. And I had a short list of topics I was planning to center my next few episodes around, but Bitcoin is by far the most interesting thing in the world right now, so fuck whatever all those other topics were. I don't even remember (laughs) the fuck I was going to talk about. Now I've got a new list. Uh... Not necessarily about Bitcoin itself. There's plenty of other content out there that goes into that if you're interested. Um, But more viewed through the lens of Bitcoin. Really viewed through the lens of money. Uh, When I say Bitcoin is the most interesting thing in the world, I don't mean the protocol by itself or the price going up and down or the network of miners and validating nodes or China banning, whatever. Um, That stuff is interesting, you know, and it's cool, but those aren't the most interesting things in the world. What makes Bitcoin the most interesting thing is or are the social and political aspects of it. And as Bitcoin grows and more of the world adopts it, the world is going to be different. That's what's interesting. And to kind of get a glimpse of how it's going to be different. And the difference will be more drastic than the world was 30 years ago from now. Or in other words, 2035 is going to be more different from now than now is different from 1990. It's going to happen in half the time, less than half the time. And it's going to be because of Bitcoin, not cryptocurrencies, not blockchain, fucking Bitcoin. So I'm probably going to make at least a few of the uh, upcoming episodes related to Bitcoin because it's, it's a lot to get into. And I wasn't really sure where I should start, where I should focus on, you know, to have it a nice, tidy, wrapped up, hour-long gift for you with a little bow on it. Um, But a week or two weeks ago, I guess it's two weeks now, the uh, U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan in a glorious display of bureaucratic incompetence. So why not start there? So early on in Afghanistan, this would have been March of 2002, Um, that's when I got there, we arranged an airdrop of $2 million, $2 million worth of Rolexes to a warlord we were supporting. So basically, we were, we took $2 million of Rolexes, put them in a box, attached a parachute to the box and kicked it out of a plane in Afghanistan. Uh, These were early days and uh, that multi-trillion dollar infrastructure that eventually came to be to support the war effort, that shit did not exist yet. There wasn't a massive trucking and shipping network yet. There wasn't even a green zone. Like we had just taken Kandahar from the Taliban a couple of months before. Um, and when I say we, I mean the U.S. I wasn't there for that, for the taking of Kandahar. So airdropping stuff in was pretty standard in the beginning. That was kind of one of the few ways you could get shit to guys like, you know, out in the mountains somewhere. Um, there were also a couple million in cash and other kind of bling items uh, in the drop with the Rolexes. But the Rolexes really stood out to me. The warlords liked Rolexes because they would kind of dole them out to their 
you know, little sub commanders and their favorite fighters. Um, and we would use them as gifts and bribes for local ti- tribal leaders, you know, got to win them hearts and minds with a fucking shiny watch. And it made me the whole time. It made me think of Beowulf and how the chieftains and Beowulf are referred to as the ring givers because Iron Age warlords in like, you know, Norse and Germanic tribes, Anglo-Saxon type shit, um, they would hand out gold and silver arm rings to their warriors. Like the king, or the, their equivalent of a king, he'd have his group of men-at-arms or dudes with axes and swords and shit. And to kind of pay them or keep them on the payroll, he'd just give them like bracelets, like big, thick bracelets of like gold and silver. And then that was their money and they would wear it because the best way to secure your money back in the day was you keep it on your person and you stab anybody in the face who tries to steal it from you. And then, you know, if they want, that was basically their wealth. Kind of like how an, like an Indian bride, you know, she gets dressed up in all her family's gold. She might have like 200 grand worth of gold on her. And that's like the family's wealth that she's bringing to the husband's family. I think that's how it works. Maybe that's just, it stays her wealth. I don't know. Um, kind of like that. One's for war, <laughs> one's for marriage. But these are just ways to like hold your wealth. Um, where the fuck was I at? Oh yeah, so the Rolexes were basically the same shit. They're handing out a Rolex to a dude in a funny hat and an AK-47 sitting on a horse. And it was hilarious. Something about like wearing bling to display your wealth. It's got to be like ingrained in our DNA, DNA somewhere. Um, and it doesn't quite... I, I think old-timey Vikings would... Um, you know, if they wanted to buy something, they would take an arm ring off and like, you know cut a bit of the gold or silver off it you know and then that would be you know equivalent of their coins i guess i'm sure they used coins when they stole coins but um it's hard to do that with a rolex (laughs) it's kind of like the rolex isn't quite as good of a medium of exchange unless you're trading the whole rolex for something but just displaying your wealth on your person i mean that cuts across every culture um I guess the the American or Western upper upper middle class bohemian bourgeoisie version is uh, showing off your hundred thousand dollar kitchen remodel or something, or your I don't know bling is showing off bling is lower class to them or gauche. Um, I get I don't know how they virtue signal with their with their money <laughs> but it's something like that it's not quite as fungible or tradable or um you know exchangeable as just straight gold jewelry is um so yeah so i'm there and i'm watching some 21st century warlord i guess we were two years into the 21st century do the same shit as a ninth century warlord but with rolexes you know, it's real Viking shit 1,200 years later. And part of me, you know, of course, I thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> and it was funny. But, I mean, part of me thought it was pretty badass, too. <laughs> badass until you see, like, a dozen chubby dudes with beards and funny mushroom hats, like, sitting on shaggy ponies with AK-47s. And they've got two Rolexes on each wrist. I mean, then it's just ridiculous but also kind of cool at the same time but this first shipment of rolexes that we had dropped out of the plane for us didn't make it we're just like waiting in the dark in the cold for at the drop point all goddamn night and then freezing our asses off and then we you know we get in contact back with uh headquarters and they tell us, oh, sorry, the drop went off course and landed in the river. Uh, hold position till tomorrow night and uh, we'll get you another drop. 
it just lost, you know, two million dollars worth of Rolexes and a couple million dollars of other sundries in the river. I assume the Kabul River, we were kind of near there. <laughs> that was within 50 miles, but I don't, they never said which river. Um, did we send anyone on a recovery mission for those missing Rolexes? No. We did not. There was no effort made to recover millions of dollars of bribes paid for by U.S. taxpayers. Uh, and this was probably the first moment when I started to understand how government spending works. <laughs> I still don't quite fully understand it. I've definitely been able to wrap my head around it much better through just understanding Bitcoin. You just can't help but, you know start to see the matrix, see how the matrix works, the financial matrix. Um, but by now it's clear to me, you know, no one person fully understands the economy and how governments spend money, least of all the government itself. Um, no one understands it, especially not the people actually spending the money. Uh, I read some transcripts in my throughout my bitcoin education sometime uh and these were transcripts from the meetings at the federal reserve between 2007 and 2020 uh i didn't read all the transcripts because you know i'm not going to torture myself um but it's laughably obvious jerome powell and janet yellen have no clue what's happening throughout that whole period. And it wasn't until this year when I got into Bitcoin that I started to be able to wrap my head around what is actually happening with things like, what is the Federal Reserve exactly? How is it different from the Treasury Department? What the fuck is a petrodollar? What's a euro dollar? What's quantitative easing? Most importantly, I learned what money is. I'm 45 years old, and I just fucking learned what money is. Before we lost the Rolexes, I kind of assumed all government spending was paid for with tax dollars in a very like direct cause and effect kind of way. I pay my taxes. The IRS collects a few trillion dollars in other tax revenue around the country income tax, sales tax. Uh, you know, I kind of know what tariffs are, you know. When I think when I hear tariffs, I think of like colonial era shit before we had income tax, you know, they just the fed got their money through tariffs. I don't really know what the fuck a tariff is yet. I'm not I'm not too into international trade quite yet. Maybe next year I'll I'll understand what that is. Um and then the House and the Senate and the President argue over a budget uh, and how to allocate that money. And then so many billions of dollars go to defense. And eventually, $2 million of those billions of dollars are used to buy Rolexes to bribe a warlord to help our mission in Afghanistan. That's how I thought government spending worked. Once it was clear to me that no one at any level was even considering possibly sending some sort of salvage operation to recover those millions of dollars in cash and jewelry that we were just going to send another drop of equal value and write off the previous one. I knew that my conception of government spending was like childish, really. Like my conception of money, my understanding of money was childish. And I knew I wasn't alone. I knew then no one in my chain of command, no one on my team, no one involved in military intelligence or special operations, no one involved in supply, logistics, finance, procurement. No one had any idea what the fuck money was. Except that warlord. <laughs> that son of a bitch understood money. He got us <laughs> to pay double 
I don't know. Uh, how do you say that? He got us to pay double for him to take half. I don't know. Whatever. You know what I'm talking about. We paid. We paid him twice to pay him once, basically, or we spent twice to pay him once. Um, and I made a joke at the time, you know, that we should come back with some scuba gear later, scuba gear to get the Rolexes, <laughs> like hunt that shit down. Uh. And I didn't think much about it recently other than, you know, it was like a funny story that I rarely tell. I would think of it any time someone would ask me, like, why the U.S. was still in Afghanistan and Iraq after so many years. Um, I'd just tell them that story. <laughs> like, that's why. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of, you know, thought we were doomed from the start if that's how we're going to go about fighting a war. Um... The last 20 years, I've read tons of articles about corruption and greed and fraud and, you know, defense and government in general and mission drift, but it really comes down to lack of accountability. Our approach was to move fast and break things and damn the expense. And in the relative peacetime of pre-9-11, there was a lot more fiscal restraint. I guess maybe not a lot, but there there was a culture of our budget is only so much, so we can't go crazy. But the typical government and military budget mindset was really primed for the spare no expense attitude post 9-11. Because pre-9-11, every September, we were always in a mad rush to spend the last of our budget before the end of the fiscal year. God forbid we don't spend every last dollar because if we have any left over, they might decide to reduce our budget the next year. Uh, and I've since learned that is not just the military. That's anything remotely related to government. Anybody who gets any money from the government, they're deathly afraid of not spending all the money they get because if they don't, they might not get the same amount next year. Whether you need, whether your department or office or whoever you're working for needs that money or not. There's a lot of pressure to spend every last little dime. Uh, three Septembers in a row, I had to go into the Kuwaiti desert and fire off, you know, 30 AT-4 rockets, anti-tank rockets, throw 50-odd hand grenades, and I'm, you know, it's not me alone. There's a bunch of us, you know, 50 to 100 of us. We're all just shooting off ammo, <laughs> blowing up, like, junk cars with C4, getting rid of all this allotment of ammo just so we could get the same amount issued to us next year. It blew my mind every time. I'm like, every time I'm like, why don't we just like not, but I'm, I'm all for going out and throwing hand grenades. Sure. That's a good time. But a part of me was like, this doesn't seem like the best use of our budget. Maybe we can say, Hey, we don't need as many anti-tank rockets this year. How about we get, get that in another form? How about instead of giving us the rockets, why don't you give us more money for like training or something? But I don't know. It didn't work like that. For whatever reason, shit does not work like that. So when 9-11 happens and we have to head off to Afghanistan and we get plane loads full of like brand new shotguns. And I'm like, we don't all need shotguns. <laughs> Every person on the team doesn't need a shotgun. One or two per team is plenty. Like, we're not going to be running around the mountains with shotguns. Like, basically, it's useful to have a shotgun if you want to, like, you know, breach a door. <laughs> but the range isn't that great. So, like, if, if I'm trading, you know, bullets at 400 meters, like, a shotgun's not going to cut it. It's just, like, dead weight, dead weight. And I'm already carrying around more than enough bullshit already. I don't need to add yet another gun for me to lug around. But everyone had this mentality just to request as much stuff as you could get away with until someone in charge said no. And I got out of the army and went to college 
you know, about a year, year and a half later. Um, and it looks like for the last 20 years, no one in charge ever said no. And now the media is in a tizzy, putting out all their hot takes on why the U.S. failed in Afghanistan and trying to shoehorn their pet issues into them. Like, like what about feminism? What about, what about feminism? Oh, my God. How, if we fail in Afghanistan, we fail feminism. I've been told by the media every day since Trump started campaigning in 2015 that the United States is a toxic male rape culture. So if we failed in Afghanistan, what is the exact nature of our failure? Is it a failure on our part to transplant our liberal, democratic, feminist ideals over there? Like, how are we ever going to export feminism to Afghanistan if after 150 years of feminism in America and four separate waves of it, we're still a toxic male rape culture? Does that make sense? If what I've been told repeatedly about American culture is true, then I would say we fully succeeded in Afghanistan. Like we achieved total victory and successfully replicated American toxic male rape culture over there. And the Taliban should be excellent stewards of it in our absence. That's like mission accomplished, right? Except... I mean, they already had a toxic male rape culture, so I guess they didn't need us to give it to them. <laughs> like, it was, it's been alive and well going on there. And if you're still salty about it, about, you know, no feminism in Afghanistan, if it bothers you that much and you want to go uh, fight for Malala, <laughs> then grab a gun and head over there to fucking Panjshir province and join the real hashtag resistance although i think panjir gave up recently they were gonna they were gonna hold on and fight it out but i think they gave up i should google that someone told me they gave up you know three days later panjir means five lions in farsi um you could be the sixth lion you know Grab a gun, head on over there. Fierce as fuck. Also, pick me up some emeralds while you're there. They got a they got a sweet emerald mine there. Also, pro tip, when you're loading a magazine into your AK-47, you have to kind of like hook the front of the magazine into the front part of the magazine well, and then you kind of got to lever the back of it up in until it snaps in place. It's a little bit tricky at first if you don't know how to do it. And you don't want to have to figure that out when a fucking 12.7 millimeter dishka opens up on you. That's not the time to familiarize yourself with loading your AK. Also, what about freedom of speech in Afghanistan? Some reporter asked like the, the Taliban spokes, spokesman, about freedom of speech and this guy this guy said their regime would have more freedom of speech than facebook or twitter (laughs) and i thought i can make peace with that guy that guy's hilarious i don't know about the rest of the taliban i mean we were too busy shooting at each other so i never really got the impression that they had a sense of humor but what do i know maybe they do (laughs) that shit was funny uh while I was there I didn't detect any any irony in their Allahu Akbars when they were yelling them. But that guy, that spokesman, I mean I'd share a hookah and a chai boy with that guy. Fuck yeah. And then there are all the articles complaining that we spent trillions of dollars and still lost the war, but that's not true. We we achieved our main objective in Afghanistan and Iraq which was a continuous 20-year upward transfer of wealth from the working and middle classes to the defense industry. 
That's what it was all for. So we won. And that transfer of wealth from us, plebs, to defense contractors won't end just because we're out of Iraq and Afghanistan. We're still involved in plenty of other conflicts in the Middle East and Africa. Conflicts that barely get mentioned in the corporate press. The forever wars will continue. Don't worry. They'll just be in places Americans care even less about. And Dyncor and Booz Allen, Hamilton and Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, they'll all continue to suck value out of the economy. So don't worry on that front. I know some of you might get nervous if it seems like world peace is in danger of breaking out. You know, like, what does it mean to be an American when my country isn't fighting unemployment by killing poor brown people? Don't worry. America's still going to bomb the shit out of poor brown people. That's what we do. We'll just hear about it even less than we did before. So, you know, our white guilt will not be in danger of being overshadowed by our American guilt. And if you're a person of color, you can still continue to shamelessly shame all of us pale face round eyes and not be disturbed by thoughts about how exactly the lithium in your smartphone got there. That's not your problem. You're not responsible for that. The 20th century taught us that waging war to control the wealth of other nations is for losers. That's what Hitler tried to do. That's what Saddam tried to do. That's what ISIS was trying to do. Trying to grab land and, you know, steal the gold out of, out of bank vaults. Like, that's dumb shit. The winners of the 20th century all waged war to control the wealth of their own nations. That's what war's for. I guess my uh, my shitty hot take on why we failed in Afghanistan is that we really failed to control our own wealth. It's one thing to suck value out of the economy and like give it to parasitic American corporations, but I've seen estimates of... 10 to 20% of the money spent in Afghanistan ended up with the Taliban. One of the ways that happened was through bribes for safe passage. So uh, I guess after I got out, you know, and I was having a good time in college, um, the U.S. would uh, contract with uh, local jingle truck companies to transport fuel and and supplies in Afghanistan. So local uh, jingle trucks are... Uh, you've probably seen a picture. It's the truck with all the shit on it. <laughs> you know, it looks like a, it's a truck that looks like a, a rug or it, it kind of looks like a whorehouse, like an old timey whorehouse. So the truckers, you know, they're just local truckers, usually independent A guy owns a truck and that's how he makes his living. And he just decorates his truck with, you know, bells and shit. Um, we call them jingle trucks. So, and the U S would, you know, hire these guys out to transport like fuel and food and bullets and shit. And apparently, uh, it was cheaper to pay the Taliban to not attack your trucks than it was to hire security and fight them off. So we would hire the trucks, but we would not provide security. We would just pay them to hire their own security. But for them, you know, their incentive is to make as much money as possible. So they could pay more for security or just pay less as a bribe to the Taliban. I'm not even sure what security was even available to hire. Like hiring local Afghan security would be dodgy because I wouldn't count on them to stand and fight to protect, you know, a thousand gallons of diesel. And I don't know that Blackwater or Triple Canopy or, you know, one of those companies would bother with that kind of work when, I mean, they're making money hand over fist, just overcharging the State Department and CNN to guard journalists. Um, yeah. So that's one of one of the major ways, you know, our defense money went straight to the Taliban. And, like, a Taliban fighter probably costs at, at least a 
tenth as much as like a U.S. soldier as far as like equipment training and support. So they can hold on and keep fighting for much less money in their own territory. Um, and really, we're taking the same approach fighting COVID. You know, a couple trillion dollars were injected in the economy to keep it going during lockdowns with no accountability at all. Uh, I just read something last week saying around 40% of that money, all that stimulus money, um, was siphoned off through fraud. And half of that 40%, so 20%, was stolen by foreigners. <laughs> like, people living in other countries. And they named the usual suspects in the article, Russians and Iranians and Nigerians, yeah, yeah. All the countries we're not supposed to like. But I'm pretty sure there were some Canadians and Brits and Dutchy motherfuckers too. <laughs> Uh, I guess one of, one of the main ways they did that is they would just create a fake identity and then apply for unemployment because they were giving unemployment away like to anybody with barely any real identification. Um, so you get some, you know, Canadian or Nigerian can create, you know, 20 fake social security numbers and they're getting on average $20,000 of unemployment for each fake identity. Um, yeah, they caught one guy. I think he was. I don't want to single out Nigerians. I think this guy was Nigerian, though, in the article. He, he'd made off with something like, like $350,000 just through unemployment scams. Um, and then we got, you know, we got this new bill. They just passed a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill. How much of that will actually go to infrastructure? If we're lucky... Maybe half. And then how much of that will go to infrastructure that is actually beneficial? Maybe half of that. Maybe a quarter trillion might actually be useful. As far as I can see, the only useful shit in that bill, maybe more broadband development. I'm not an expert on infrastructure, but... I'm learning more about it. Uh, you know, I was an old school lefty raised by lefties. FDR is like a national hero. You know, oh, he knew the the New Deal. He built all this great shit. And, then, you know, now I'm learning like, well, yeah, now we have to pay to maintain all that shit. And half of it's off obsolete or more than half of it's obsolete. But we're still paying to maintain it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have an opinion on infrastructure, but I used to have one and I'm kind of realizing it's wrong, but I haven't quite formed a new one yet. Uh, also, the bill is something like 2,300 pages long. I'm certainly not going to read the thing. <laughs> so who knows what's in there? And what the hell, what's going in this new three and a half trillion dollar bill about? That's a classic sales technique. You get people to buy something, anything, and then it's easier to get them to buy more expensive shit. <laughs> Once they've proven they'll buy one thing. Uh, they do that with political donations all the time. If you donate anything to any politician, they will never leave you alone. You've already demonstrated you're willing to pay. Uh, so I don't know what's in this new... Three and a half trillion trillion dollar bill. The corporate media is pretty. Uh, they're suspiciously vague about it. Healthcare, climate, child and elder care. Um, I mean, what fucking assholes could possibly object object to those things? Um, all this like is reminds me of a, a Silicon Valley episode where uh, they get the asshole billionaire, the, the, the Russ, Russ Hanneman, which I haven't watched that show in a couple of years, uh, the Trace Comos guy, <laughs> um, where they get him to commit, you know, to being like their VC angel investor. And then he never actually ends up giving them any money. 
and then you know the 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 boys the team you know they they put their elbow grease to the grindstone if i'm going to mix some metaphors and they pull out you know pull a miracle out of their ass with no funding and then they're like hey great we did it now can you give us money and the billionaire is like well no look what you accomplished when i didn't give you money why would i give you money now <laughs> and it's funny it's a great you know it's it's funny um you know it shows what a dick the billionaire is but also like he's right <laughs> and then from what i remember a, a lot a recurring theme in the show is um is like the massive amount of money running through tech and silicon valley is actually like impeding innovation and that's the same principle of you know fighting covid or trying to win in Afghanistan, just shotgunning money everywhere, hoping some of it, some of it sticks and manages to help win the war. Um, but yeah, you don't have to think hard when you have unlimited funds. And what the fuck does any of this have to do with the Bitcoin? How am, how am I possibly going to shoehorn my pet topic into Afghanistan falling apart? <laughs> Uh, I don't know yet. I'm working on it. The thing about Bitcoin is in order to understand its benefit to the world, you kind of have to get an idea about what's wrong with the world. And that's hard to find because kind of everything's wrong and most people will just focus on one thing. Um, but if everything's falling apart, it makes sense there might be one fundamental reason of why military industrial complex, healthcare, education, government in general, entertainment, media, why is Hollywood marketing every movie to China? Like, like everything's falling apart. Every, like everything's coming apart of the seams all at the same time. There must be a reason. Uh, and the most compelling reason I found is money. And I found that through Bitcoin. Um, but I guess that's kind of broad. Uh, here's, here's an example. I never, I never understood why we invaded Iraq in 2003 until this year, until I started learning about Bitcoin. I kind of knew we were going to do it in 2000 when Bush got elected. Because in the Army... Bush gets elected. I joined the army in 94. So I joined under Clinton. And then as soon as Bush got elected, every everyone was like, get ready. We're going to Iraq again. And now no one really told us officially. It was just kind of in the air. You know, rumors. Um, and our, our training got a little more specific and felt like it had a little bit more of a purpose. Um, like this time, training is, is actually for something specific. Um, and then 9-11 happens and we're like, oh shit, I guess we're going to Afghanistan. We're not going to Iraq. And initially we were just hunting down Al-Qaeda and the Taliban were hosting them. So the Taliban had to go too. Um and then there was talk of building up the Northern Alliance and, you know, making Karzai president, bringing some kind of secular democracy and nation building and, you know, letting little girls go to school and all that good shit. And then by summer of 2002, when it was clear we were going to invade Iraq, I was like, we're not anywhere near finished in Afghanistan. <laughs> There's still plenty of little girls here who don't know their ABCs yet. Uh, and on the news, you know, they're saying Saddam was in cahoots with bin Laden. And I knew that wasn't true. Like, it was specifically my job to know that that was not true. So I was like, why are they saying that? That's not, it's a little more complicated than that, but it's not that much more complicated than that. I think the average CNN and Fox viewer could wrap their heads around, like, the real relationship that, you know, Saddam and 
Bin Laden actually didn't like each other because Bin Laden's a zealot and Saddam was just like a secular autocrat. Um, And then they said Saddam had WMDs. And as far as I knew, that was true. Like, we all generally thought that was true. He'd used chemical weapons against the Kurds in in the Iran-Iraq war in the past. But I also thought, so what? Saddam has always had WMDs. Why do we give a shit now? So I thought, like, invading Iraq was pointless. It's taken attention away from Afghanistan, but I wasn't really in charge of anything. And uh, none of the reasons why we were, were invading added up. Clearly, they weren't really telling us why. So the obvious answer was, like, Cheney wanted to funnel tax money to Halliburton, you know, in a broad sense. Um, Because we'd already seen how much money they were spending in Afghanistan. And um, as I was leaving there, that's when, like, more and more contractors started coming in. That's when they were talking about nation building. And I, you know, saw on on a ground level, like the tail end of that military industrial complex, like where there's these massive amounts of money are kind of going to. Um, you know, and also, you know, I'm kind of a bitch ass liberal, you know, I want little girls to learn how to read Maya Angelou. <laughs> and so I suspected that as soon as we shifted focus to Iraq, like, you know, those poor little Afghan girls would never know why the cage bird sings. You know, that's a crying, it's a crying shame. But also, as a soldier, I didn't want to miss it. <laughs> if there's an invasion happening, like, I may not agree with why we're going, but I definitely don't want to miss it. Because <laughs> invading a country is fun. Uh, we've all got an inner stormtrooper in us, you know, and, uh, it's important to acknowledge that about yourself and, and learn how to manage it so that one day you don't sign up to help your own government mandate vaccine passports. You know, you should learn, you should learn about your inner, uh, your inner Nazi (laughs) so you can make sure it doesn't get out of hands when, uh, your government starts getting a little bit fascist. Um, so I guess I got the feeling then 2002 ish that, uh, nine 11 Afghanistan were, well, I guess probably by 2003 is when I, I kind of started to realize this, that, um, nine 11 happening and then invading Afghanistan were really like inconvenient obstacles in the way of the real objective, which was Iraq and had been Iraq since Bush got elected. Like that was always their plan. Um, And then Afghanistan was kind of like a trial, a trial run. It was sort of like, well, we got to do it because we can't not respond to 9-11. So let's spin it in our favor for a real goal, which is to invade Iraq. And after seeing how much money was being thrown around in Afghanistan, like... I definitely had a vague sense it had to do with money, but I didn't know enough about money or finance or economics to really understand how or why. Other than that, you know, Cheney used to run Halliburton, and so he just wanted the stock to go up or make his buddies rich or something like that. You know, kind of like a simplified version. But now I know... um, Well, then... Then I knew enough to know that we didn't go to we didn't go to war in Afghanistan and Iraq for stuff like uh, as in physical stuff. We didn't invade Afghanistan to control the opium trade for pharmaceutical companies, which is something I've heard a lot since. Um, and we didn't go to access all the supposed mineral wealth. You know, it's, I've heard that a lot, too. That's the only reason we're in Afghanistan, because we want they've got lithium or they've got coltan or whatever you know, for all of our electronics. Um, We didn't invade Iraq for the oil. Uh, Going to war for stuff, you know, like commodities, is that's antiquated. That's old-timey shit. Now, that's not to say we won't take advantage of it once we're there, but, I mean, we can get stuff from other places. 
uh, trading for resources and commodities is is just more profitable than fighting for it. Um, when you trade for things, it's an opportunity to create even more wealth than just rolling tanks in and, and claiming it for yourself. So at the time, I assumed Cheney and Rumsfeld manufactured justifications for the Iraq invasion to, you know, personally profit from government contracting. But now I know oil and opium and lithium and trillions of dollars in government contracts are, that's just, that's just cream floating on top of the real reason we invaded Iraq. And that was preserving the petrodollar. And it's because of Bitcoin that I know what the fuck a petrodollar is and why winning or losing a forever war is really just like a contradiction in terms. There's, there's no winning or losing. If, if you're in the forever war, you're winning. Um, I had heard of the petrodollar before, um, always from some dude on the news or like on a talk radio thing, like ranting about how the economy is fucked up. Uh, and he might throw out fancy terms like the petrodollar or, um, euro dollar, something like that. Uh, but I couldn't really wrap my head around it. And, you know, this guy would try to explain them in a four minute soundbite and would fail. Um, and those sorts of macroeconomic concepts, you know, it's, it's vaguely interesting. Um, but it's also kind of like, you know, it's kind of like astrology. It's like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know if you know what you're talking about. And it doesn't really seem relevant to my day-to-day life. I've got other shit going on, so I never took the time to dig into them. And I think really most people before 10 years ago, well, I know like 99% of people still don't know what the fucking petrodollar is. Um, And back then, you know, in the early 2000s, yeah, nobody really understood. Um, But when you buy $1,000 worth of Bitcoin, all that shit becomes relevant real fast. (laughs) Suddenly, it gives you an incentive to learn about it. You know, did I just take $1,000 and light it on fire? Should I sell it? Should I wait until it gets to $10,000 and then sell it? Should I take out a personal loan at 8% interest and buy more of it? What if it gets hacked or the government bans it? What if it becomes bigger than the internet? You know, like, if I want to understand what the hell I got myself into, maybe I should look into this whole petrodollar thing. Um, And I should probably thank, uh, there's this guy named Alex Gladstein, who I've heard on a couple podcasts. And he's some dude who works at uh, the Human Rights Foundation. Uh, he had a really great explanation of the petrodollar and the history of the petrodollar. So I should thank him for helping me wrap my head around it. But the petrodollar, briefly, is an agreement the U.S. has with OPEC, the uh, oil-producing countries. I forget what the E stands for. Uh, Especially Saudi Arabia. And so this agreement is that OPEC countries who produce oil, will only sell that oil for dollars, for U.S. dollars. So that means every other country in the world that buys oil from an OPEC nation has to convert their currency to dollars and then buy oil with those dollars. So you can't just buy oil from OPEC with euros or yuan or yen or dinars or whatever. Uh, The United States, on the other hand, we can just magically print more dollars. We don't actually print. We just add it to our, you know, balance sheet. We just fucking make more dollars out of nothing. And we can buy as much oil as we like. And if you've ever filled up a gas tank in Europe and then filled one up in the U.S., the price difference is insane. I grew up in Berlin in the 80s and 90s. And filling the tank... And like your sedan, you know, if you wanted to fill your Corolla up, it's easily $100 for 10 to 12 gallons of gas. And this was like 80s prices, $100 in the 80s. Um, 
so my parents, you know, they were in the army. They only got gas on the American base and gas there was less than a dollar a gallon. So you can see how the petrodollar gives the U.S. a huge advantage globally. And it's not just about cheaper oil and gas. Um, that's another side benefit um, that I guess keeps, keeps the voters happy. But since the dollar is the world reserve currency, meaning all other currencies in the world are more or less valued against the dollar, they're tied to the dollar, and the dollar hasn't been backed up by gold for the last 50 years, the petrodollar is a huge stabilizer for the value of the regular U.S. dollar. So it's kind of the dollar isn't fully backed by oil, but oil, not oil itself, but that relationship, that petrodollar relationship really helps maintain the value of the dollar or keeps it from devaluing too fast. Um, so when the U.S. is accused of going to war for oil, it's kind of inaccurate. Like, we're not going to war to get the oil. We're not even going to war to get the oil cheaper. We're going to war to make sure nobody else can buy that oil with a currency other than the dollar. That's the most important part. Oil is important, but our ability to set the terms of trading oil is the backbone of our global dominance. So in 1990, when Saddam invaded Kuwait and was threatening to invade Saudi, like the U.S. had to step in. Saddam was threatening to destabilize the, the oil-backed world reserve currency that allowed the U.S. to be the last remaining superpower after the collapse of the USSR. And for whatever reason, Bush Sr. was content to keep Saddam contained with sanctions and no-fly zones and not remove him, you know, as leader of Iraq. But then around 2000, Saddam started getting crafty. He wanted to get around the sanctions and get around the oil embargo. So he was threatening to sell Iraqi oil for euros and not for dollars. So in essence, Saddam was going to create a petro-euro that would compete with the petrodollar. And that's why Bush Jr. and Ch Bush Jr. and Cheney and Rumsfeld invaded Iraq in 2003. At least that's the only reason that makes sense to me. And uh, my anecdotal experiences of being in the military, like before and after 9-11. Everything else is just a sideshow to the petrodollar, like Al-Qaeda, nation building, wealth transfers, WMDs, Bin Laden, spider holes, poppy fields, Halliburton, teaching little girls in headscarves to build robots. Uh, maybe more accurately, like all those things are, they're the shiny tourist attractions that get headlines. You know, that's what we're shown as we ride the double decker tour bus around Emerald's, Emerald City. But that son of a bitch behind the curtain pulling all the levers, that's the petrodollar. Also, Gaddafi, the U.S. was willing to let him stay in power in Libya for decades even after we knew he was responsible for multiple terrorist attacks back in the 80s. But as soon as he started making plans to develop a gold dinar, a currency backed by gold used to trade oil that would also compete with the petrodollar, we took the first opportunity provided by Arab Spring to support the rebel factions, including Al-Qaeda, First, we don't like him. Now we do like him, <laughs> Al-Qaeda, to depose and execute Gaddafi. And now Libya has open chattel slavery, <laughs> just fucking slave markets out in the open. But we're cool with that so long as the dollar remains the global reserve currency. Now in the 21st century, we're going to find out if a nation can control its own wealth by waging war on itself. You know, there's lots of domestic terror wars we can wage. Or domestic forever wars, like domestic terrorism is one. Um, you know, we've kind of done it with the drug war. 
we can wage that war abroad and at home. Um, now we can try domestic a war on domestic terror, which is you know really it's just a war on poor, on working class white people. Uh, global warming that's another war we can wage on ourselves. Healthcare, COVID's a great one. COVID came around right on time. Homelessness, like as much money as we put into fighting homelessness, wh why is it getting worse every year? But also, why would we ever want to cure or fix homelessness if there's so much money to be made fighting it? <laughs> all of the all of these have become. Or, or on the verge of becoming like new forever wars that we can fight right here at home, just like the war on drugs. A trillion dollar infrastructure bill, a three and a half trillion dollar nursing home and childcare bill. Where's the money actually going? You know, contractors again. Sure, it might create some new jobs, but those new jobs aren't really creating new value. They're just taking value from our dollars that we earn and haven't saved uh, that we've already earned through our labor and all the dollars we'll earn in the future and transferring that wealth to whichever companies successfully lobby for those future contracts. So these trillion dollar bills, they don't come from tax money we pay to the U.S., the money comes from the Federal Reserve and the Treasury adding it to their balance sheets. But they can print money, but they can't create more value. They can't create more wealth that way. So we get inflation. Prices go up. There's more money, but an equal amount of wealth. So each individual dollar or unit of money is represents less wealth so prices go up it takes more dollars to buy shit or the quality of goods and services go down usually both happens you know inflation is uh it's just a tax really we call it the shadow tax and it's taken from us slowly over time by unelected officials so here's a fun fact to kind of demonstrate how that works Hershey's and Cadbury's chocolate, most of those most of those two companies, most or those two companies, most of their products legally can't be called chocolate anymore because of inflation. So chocolate gets more and more expensive compared to the dollar. They don't want to raise prices too much too fast. So they gradually put out a shittier and shittier chocolate and rely on the power of their brand to keep their customer base. So what's happened to Hershey's is happening to every business, every company, every corporation, every nonprofit, government, everywhere. What is Hershey's going to do about it? It's not that Hershey's is evil or, you know, more greedy than the next guy. It's the money is fucked, which means their incentives are fucked. They have to balance their customers and employees and their shareholders because they have to compete in the market. They have to compete against Cadbury's and Mars or whoever. Or maybe, I don't know, Mars might own both of them. Um, and if they refuse to dilute their products along with the dilution of the dollar, by this point they'd have to charge $40 for a Hershey bar. No one's paying $40 for a Hershey bar. Not for Hershey's. You know, Hershey's is not a luxury brand. Their brand is mass-producing palatable sugar delivery devices to fat fucks. You know, they're, they're the Budweiser of chocolate. So how do we end all the, all the forever wars while also making real chocolate affordable again? Basically, how do we get rich and save the world, and save chocolate all at once. Buy Bitcoin. <laughs>